Good morning. It is good to see each of you. And again, a warm welcome to anyone who's visiting with us for the first time. It's time to take God's Word and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In one of his books, Sinclair Ferguson writes the following, uh, every death is a shock, terminal illness, such as my father had, or progressive deterioration, such as my mother had, are illnesses of the living, but in a vague sense, expected. My brother, however, died late one night without warning. I remember lying in bed hours later, so overwhelmed by the shock that I wondered whether I could sustain it sufficiently to be able to visit my mother early the next morning to break her heart with the news. That sad journey, the words that passed between my mother and myself as we clung to each other in the valley of the shadow of death, these are the unforgettable secrets of the soul. But there is something else I cannot forget about those hours. Something that sustained me then and has often done so in other circumstances since. As I lay awake, waiting for the dawn in the hour of the dreaded visit as a messenger of sorrow, some words of scripture lodged for many years in my memory seem to grow from a seed into a mighty tree under whose branches I've found shelter from the storm comfort in my sorrow and light in my darkness. I felt those words to be true as surely as if I heard the voice of God speak them from heaven. Here they are. For I am sure that neither death nor things present nor things to come will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I cannot now imagine living the Christian life on any other basis than this. The hope of the resurrection to eternal life. It's Paul's theme in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He is wrestling here with perhaps the greatest of all questions. What happens when we die? Maybe you came here this morning for a little pick-me-up, a little shot in the arm, a little pep talk, chicken soup for the soul. I'm sorry. Uh, we deal with serious issues here, <clears throat> issues of eternal consequence. What happens when we die? The naturalist. Maybe you're one for all I know. You'll certainly have met them or heard of them. The naturalist believes that all that matters is what happens from birth to death. Nothing after death. Game over. We cease to exist. This is it. Life between two poles of meaninglessness. And somehow the naturalist tries to desperately infuse this meaningless life with meaning. I have much to say to the naturalist. Sadly, time does not permit it this morning. 
but he is a sorry fellow. He certainly is seeking to find some kind of purpose, some kind of fulfillment, some kind of happiness in what is ultimately nothing more than mere triviality. Nothing after death. We're just gone. That's one view. Second very popular, popular view is that of the dualist. And the dualist, dual, two, divides this realm into, yes, you guessed it, two. There is the spiritual and there is the material. And the material is bad and the spiritual is good. And so what happens when we die? When we die, the material that is our body, it ceases to exist. It's over. Dust to dust, ashes to ashes, it's gone. Oh, but our spirit, our soul, it continues forever. That is without doubt the most common view among most religions in our day. It is, as a matter of fact, a very common view among many Christians. More on that in a moment. You have the naturalist, you have the dualist, and then you have a third view, a third category, and it is that of the well-informed Christian. What happens when we die? It's very simple. Our bodies decay. Thousands of molecules spread for thousands of miles around through plants and animals. We decay our bodies at the moment of death. It begins. Uh, what happens to our souls? Two possibilities. For the unrighteous, the unbeliever, it's a place called hell, a place of torment. For the believer, it is a place of, called heaven, a place of sanctuary, a place of rest. Jesus is coming again. And when he comes again, what's going to happen? There's going to be a resurrection of those decomposed, decayed bodies. And our bodies will be reunited with our souls, whether from heaven or from hell. And we will stand before the great throne of judgment. And those who've been resurrected, who are unbelievers, unrighteous, they will be cast into the lake of fire. It is called the second death. And those who are believers in the Lord Jesus, those who rest in him as their hope of eternal salvation, they, body and soul, will be perfected. They will be conformed perfectly to the likeness of the Lord Jesus, and they will inherit eternal life. Three broad views. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is dealing with the reality that there are some in the church at Corinth who fall into the second category. They're professing Christians, right? They've heard and received the gospel, uh, the gospel of first importance, the death of the Lord Jesus for sinners, his burial, his resurrection. They've received it, but for some strange reason, they do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They are dualists. They have spiritualized the resurrection. They think they're going to inherit a disembodied eternal state floating around somewhere. We're not quite sure where. And so Paul writes this chapter to address them, to speak to them. And he basically shows them three things. Firstly, he shows them that the resurrection of the dead will occur. It's going to happen. It's beyond dispute. Secondly, he shows them when 
the resurrection will occur. And thirdly, he shows them how the resurrection is going to occur. We've covered the first two. We arrive today at the third. How will the resurrection occur? And follow along now as I begin to read from God's word, the 35th verse. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind. And the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. The place to begin is in the beginning, verse 35. And here we come face to face with a question. There are actually two questions, but I believe it's the same, slightly reworded. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And so you've just spoken of the coming of the Lord Jesus. You've just spoken of the end, the arrival of the end, when the Lord Jesus will deliver up the mediatorial kingdom to the Father. And you have indicated that what will mark the end is Christ's victory over death. Christ's victory over death is the resurrection, the resurrection of the body. Here's our question then. When that happens, when he comes and this all takes place, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? It's a good question. I'm not sure, however, they're asking it for the right motive. I arrive at that conclusion because of what Paul says right at the start of verse 36. 
you foolish person. So you would think Paul might say, hmm, that's a very interesting question. That's what I often say in Sunday school. Hmm, that's a very interesting question. And for the large part, they are very interesting questions. That's a very profitable question. I'm glad you asked that question. That's pertinent to my argument. These are things we should be talking about and discussing. That's not what he says. What he say? You foolish person. Why? Because I think he understands the motive why they're asking this question. They're still mocking, ridiculing the idea of a resurrection of the dead. They're still in doubt. These are dualists, firmly entrenched in their belief system that the physical is evil. It cannot continue forever. No, 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 no. It cannot occupy any place in the plan of God in redemption. No, these bodies are a prison cell of our souls. And the sooner we're free of these this prison, this prison cell, the better off we'll be. And these are the people Paul is dealing with. And as he has gone through this argument, he anticipates this mocking. Perhaps he has heard it. Okay, sure. You talk about Christ coming and this resurrection. Okay, what is this body going to be like? What's this going to look like? Oh, you foolish person. And Paul does seize the opportunity to explain it. But he doesn't actually get to his answer until verse 42. You might have picked up on that as we read it. A little convoluted, a little complicated. What does he do then in verse 36 through 41? He recognizes that his audience might not have the required mental framework to compute his answer. He realizes there might be missing blocks in the foundation, missing foundation stones. And if he just starts throwing stuff on the wall, it's all going to come down. That, that there's something wrong in the way they're thinking, something wrong in their worldview. And so what he does, it's fascinating really, verses 36 through 41, is he makes three appeals to nature. And he gives three analogies. That's all he does. He doesn't even talk about the resurrection. He just gives three analogies. So essentially he's saying to his audience, okay, look, 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 just stop for a moment. Let's breathe. We'll get to it in a moment. What are these bodies going to be like? But for you to really grasp this, understand this, let's just uh, go on a little field trip together. You remember those days going on a field trip back in school? Everybody hold the rope and off you go. And we're going to take a little walk outdoors. Okay. And I just want to make three observations and these will serve as three analogies. And if you get these analogies, okay, the foundation is in place and then we can answer the question. So off we go. Here's the first analogy from creation. Seeds become plants. You didn't expect to come here this morning and learn that, did you? Seeds become plants. It's stating the obvious. So what he says there in verse 36, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed, its own body. And so it's very simple what he's saying. Let's imagine for some reason we have a wheat kernel. All right, seed. And we venture into our backyard 
we're back 40, whatever the case might be. And we have a little spade with us, and we overturn a bit of terrain, a bit of dirt, and we drop that seed, that kernel there in the ground. We have just sown the seed. We have planted it. What's going to happen? Well, it dies somewhere in there, and you add a little water, and the sun shines, and I'm going to show that I know absolutely nothing here. I don't know, a couple weeks later, maybe? <laughs> something happens, a shoot. Help me out here, Lucas. A couple weeks, maybe? There you go. A green shoot appears. And then it grows, and over time, it eventually becomes a stalk of wheat. Guess what? It's the seed. It no longer looks like the seed. It's the seed. It's the same thing. It's the same organism, right? But that seed has now become a plant. And that plant is much more developed than the seed going into the ground. It is much more complex than the seed that went into the ground. It is much more beautiful, strikingly beautiful, than the seed that was sown in the ground. Seeds become plants. Lesson number one. Everybody got it? What's that got to do with the resurrection? Just be patient. Hang on. It has everything to do with the resurrection. All he's doing now is establishing the foundation. There's an analogy that we can get as we look around at nature. Here's the second analogy. Bodies are suited to their environments. Verse 39. For not all flesh, not all bodies are the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. I'm going to assume you've noticed this, right? A horse's body is quite different from our body. The body of an armadillo is quite different from the body of a horse. The body of a largemouth bass is very different from the body of an armadillo. Uh, The body of a red hawk or a turkey vulture or something else flying around up there is very different from the body of the largemouth bass or the white-tailed deer or something else crawling on the earth. Why? Different bodies suited to different bodies. Habitats, environments. And so an animal's body is suited to life on the ground, the earth. A fish's body is suited to life in the water. And a bird's body is suitable to life in the air. We don't see flying armadillos. Unless you're suffering from sunstroke, heat stroke or something and imagining all sorts of things. We don't see deer living under the water, and we don't see largemouth bass walking down the road. Why? This is simple. They have different bodies suited to different environments. That's analogy number two. Okay, we're still on our little nature tour here. A little outing, school outing. He gives a third analogy. There are different kinds of glory. Verse 40. There are heavenly bodies, so we see them at night. We see them at daytime as well. The sun, sometimes the moon, depending on where it is, but certainly at night. There's the sun, there's the moon. We can see other planets, Venus perhaps, and we see a host of stars, heavenly bodies. And there are earthly bodies. I've just mentioned a few, armadillo, deer, bass, red hawk, whatever. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. So you can't really compare the glory of the sun and the glory of a fox, 
different bodies, different glories. Each has a glory peculiar to its own body, right? There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon. And so even when we get up into the heavenly bodies, their glory differs from one another and another glory of the stars for stars differ from star, star differs from star in glory. So the glory of the sun is peculiar to the sun. The glory of the moon, peculiar to the glory of the moon, so forth and so on. That is the third analogy. There are different kinds of glory. So the question, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? There's no way they can be expecting this answer. You foolish person, let me give you three analogies. But that's the answer Paul gives. And it sets the table then for his actual answer to their question. Three analogies leading to three conclusions. Analogy number one, seeds become plants. What conclusion are we to derive from this? Here it is. Our bodies will rise to a new quality of life. Verse 42. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. I've given you three analogies. Seeds become plants. Bodies are suited to their environments. There are different kinds of glory. So is, is it with the resurrection of the dead. Each of these analogies now has a direct bearing on how we are to understand the resurrection. The first analogy, seeds become plants. It points to the fact that our bodies will rise to a new quality of life. What was sown perishable, he says in verse 42, is raised imperishable. What was sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What was sown in weakness is raised in power. So take that little seed, your present body, it's going into the ground. It's going to be sown. And that body right now is perishable, it is dishonorable, and it is weak. All a consequence of sin. But what is going to happen at the resurrection? The perishable will give way to the imperishable. Dishonor to glory and weakness to power. Understand this. It's the seed. It's our current bodies that go into the ground. Our bodies are the seed. It's the same seed but it now looks quite different. It's the same thing. It's the same organism. But what is going to come out and appear at the resurrection will look quite different. There'll be continuity, certainly, because it's the same thing. But it's going to look different than what went into the ground. It's going to be better. They'll be imperishable. The bodies won't get sick. Our bodies won't age. What age will we be in the resurrection? I don't know. Interesting question. You can sort it out over lunch. We won't die. We won't get sick. We won't age. We won't die. Our bodies will be powerful. They won't be sub subject to fatigue or weakness. And our bodies will be glorious. Says the Lord Jesus in Matthew 13. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So seeds become plants, meaning our bodies will rise to a new quality of life. 
The second analogy was this. Bodies are suited to their environments. What do we learn? Simply this. Our bodies will rise to a new state of existence. That's what he says in verse 44. What was sown a natural body will be raised a spiritual body. This means that our resurrected bodies will be fully, completely animated by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that our bodies will be immaterial. Put away your dualistic minds for a moment. Paul's no dualist. When he says our bodies are spiritual, it doesn't mean they're immaterial. No, they're material. They're physical still. It's the seed that was planted. But they are now spiritual, meaning they're completely animated by the Holy Spirit himself. Fully oriented and fully filled with the Holy Spirit. So what does this mean? What does this look like, this new state of existence? I think the only place we can look is the resurrected Christ. When he rose, he had his body. It is the seed that was planted in the grave and the plant that emerged imperishable and glorious and powerful. He was recognizable. People knew who he was when they saw him. He bore the marks of his crucifixion in his body. He communicated with people. He spoke with them. He walked with them. He ate fish. But from that moment, he possessed a spiritual body, fully oriented to, filled with, and animated by the Holy Spirit. He was glorified. He clearly functioned on a different level of existence. He was able to pass through doors. He was able to appear and disappear. He was able to ascend through the clouds, a spiritual body. Now, I mentioned lunch earlier. I want to put a little warning out there. So when you're celebrating Mother's Day later or whatever over lunch, and someone's, boy, did you hear what he said this morning about what our bodies will be like and what we'll be able to do? Keep your feet firmly grounded for now, all right? Fixed to this earth. And don't go all crazy here and enter into the realm of the hypothetical. We have what we have in Scripture. And we can look to the Lord Jesus, he who is fully man, the seed that was planted, a natural body, he rose from the dead, a spiritual body, and we see continuity. He was recognizable. He could be touched. He could speak. But at the same time, he now belongs to a realm of existence that was different from the realm prior to his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. And he ascends. He just appears out of nowhere. And here we see that our body will be suited to a new environment, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Our bodies in that day, by virtue of the resurrection and the operation of the Holy Spirit, will have capacities and virtues and abilities that at this stage in the game, we can only imagine. Don't let your imagination run amok over lunch. Stay within the bounds of Scripture, but understand something very different is coming. 
Something far superior is coming. It's coming. Something unbelievably spectacular is coming. It is a new state of existence. Third analogy is this. There are different kinds of glory. What does that teach us? Well, it teaches that our bodies will rise to a new condition of glory. Verse 45, thus it is written. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust. So also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. It's a new glory. Every body has its own peculiar glory, different kinds of glory. And even now, man possesses a certain glory. The Christian in Christ possesses a certain glory, but it pales in comparison to the glory that is coming. Our current bodies are natural because we inherited them from Adam. Our resurrected bodies will be spiritual. Again, that does not mean immaterial. They're material. They're physical. It means they will be completely animated by, filled with, oriented to the Holy Spirit. We will inherit these spiritual bodies from Christ himself. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Or the prophet Daniel centuries earlier wrote the following, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. Those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. One of the old, old hymn writers tried his best to capture this truth in the following stanza. I give it to you. I leave it with you. Here it is. The heavens shall glow with splendor. That much we understand. Okay, the heavens Stars above, all those heavenly bodies shall glow with splendor. But brighter far than they, the saints shall shine in glory as Christ shall them array, dress. The beauty of the Savior shall dazzle every eye in the crowning day that's coming by and by. And so Paul says to the Corinthians, look, that's my answer. You foolish person. You're asking me, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? A little lesson from nature. Seeds become plants. Bodies are suited to their environments. And there are different kinds of glory. And those analogies, we, from those analogies, we glean three tremendous truths. Our bodies will rise to a new quality of life. Our bodies will rise to a new state of existence. 
and our bodies will rise to a new condition of glory. What are we to make of all that? Let me affirm five things. First is this. From this text, we need to affirm the following. I'm very clear on it. This life is perishable. Paul makes that abundantly clear. Since the fall, creation has been caught in a continuous cycle of decay and death. The snow-capped mountains are beautiful. The rugged coastlines, mighty canyons, the fertile valleys, the gentle hills, the dew-soaked fields, the majestic forests, the rushing rivers and the placid lakes, it is all beautiful. Yet ultimately, it is all futile. It has all been subjected to futility by virtue of the curse. According to the second law of thermodynamics, the universe is running down. It is perishable. And my friend, you and I, we're perishable. We are here today and we are gone tomorrow. And when we die, here you go. Our bodies will decompose in the ground. The molecules that make up our bodies will be scattered through plants and animals for thousands of miles around. Not a pleasant thought, but an absolute reality. This life is perishable. The first affirmation we need to be clear on. Here's the second. The imperishable became perishable. I'm referring, of course, to the Lord Jesus. The imperishable became perishable. The glorious suffered dishonor. He exchanged his glory for humility. He exchanged his crown for a cross. And the powerful experienced weakness. The one who holds the greatest galaxy and smallest molecule in being was born of a woman. The one who holds our hair, fingers, arms, skin, tissue, bones, heart, lungs in being was held in the arms of a woman. The infinite became finite. And he did so for one simple reason. We read this in Hebrews chapter 1. He did so to make purification for sins. Oh, it's a wondrous truth. To make purification for sins. As I was reflecting on it this past week, I don't know why my mind goes where it goes sometimes, but it went back to Portugal. And it went back to just sort of your typical apartment home in Portugal. You have sort of your laundry room with a washing machine and always beside the washing machine, there's this wash basin, which you never, when you, when you move, you never take it with you. I think it's made out of poured concrete. Thing weighs a ton. And there it stands, and you have this basin at the one end, which you fill with water, and you dunk all your dirty clothes in there. And then from the water's edge, right up to here, on an angle, there's this board with all of these hard ridges. And you pour your, I don't know, cleanser, whatever on there. And then you reach over and you grab an article of clothing and you drag it up and you begin to do what? Try to cleanse it. I mean, clothes, how long are they going to last under that kind of brutality? But there's the attempt, trying to purge them of any filth. 
dirt. How many go through life like that? Seeking to purge themselves, cleanse themselves. My friend, it is beyond human ability. We cannot cleanse ourselves. We cannot go back and redo what has been done in the past. We cannot take back what has been done. We cannot take back what has been said. When we look at our own hearts and understand that it is from the heart, the issue, every sin issues forth. And we see our own corruption and our own sinfulness. My friend, it doesn't matter how hard you scrub. You're never coming out clean. Oh, but the imperishable one became perishable to make purification for sins. It is, again, that which is of first importance. It is the Lord Jesus Christ dying for sinners, for sins. It is the Lord Jesus Christ dying, oh, it is a beautiful word, to make atonement for sin. It is the Lord Jesus not only dying, but then rising again victorious over sin. It is the Lord Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father above. And it is understanding that it is by becoming one with the Lord Jesus through faith. That he himself purges and cleanses us of all sin. The imperishable became perishable. Here's the third affirmation we must make. We will be raised imperishable. I hope you got that as we went through the text. It's the chief point. We will be raised imperishable. God on that day will miraculously gather together the scattered molecules of your decayed body and fashion them into an imperishable body, a glorious body, a powerful body, a spiritual body, fully animated by, filled with, and oriented to the Holy Spirit. Oh, we will be glorious in soul. That's true. Partakers of the divine nature. All of the divine qualities and virtues. And we will be glorious in body because we will have a glorious, glorified body just like Christ's glorified body. God, says one author, will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now even imagine. Here's the fourth affirmation. This future hope of which Paul speaks in this chapter, this future hope is a present challenge. He says it back in the sixth chapter. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. He cares about our bodies. As a matter of fact, he has decreed that he will glorify himself in our bodies. He has purposed according to his infinite wisdom, and he'll bring it about according to his infinite power to be magnified and exalted and glorified in our bodies. We've been bought with a price, the price being the redeeming blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. All that being the case, all that being true, do you know what the obvious conclusion is? It is this. It does matter what you do with your body right now. It matters a lot. It matters a great deal. We are not our own. We are bought with a price. 
God will be glorified in us, in our bodies, and he should be glorified now. He should be glorified by what we put into them. He should be glorified by what comes out of them in our speech. He should be glorified as we seek to obey him and honor him in the use of our bodies. Oh, we must understand that this is the starting point. This is the resurrection. God's determination to be glorified in our bodies is the starting point for what we do with our bodies now. I've engaged young people, not recently, but certainly in the past. I've engaged young people. I've sat across from them. Well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I'm sexually immoral. It doesn't matter if I sleep around. It doesn't matter if I do this. It doesn't matter if I smoke dope. It doesn't matter. This doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. It matters. It's everything. To be a Christian is to be bought with a price. To be a Christian is to surrender our own ownership to that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to be a Christian above all else is to seek to glorify God now in the way we live, how we live, and to glorify him with our bodies. Oh, this future hope is a present challenge. And right back where we began, the fifth affirmation, this future hope is a present comfort. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, we do not lose heart. Whatever's going on in your life right now, some I know, some I, most I don't have a clue. Whatever it is right now, we do not lose heart. Though our outer man is wasting away, it is right before our eyes. Our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Are you wasting away? You are. So am I. Do you feel the perishability of this world? The truth is we can face anything because we know what is coming. Or in the words of Sinclair Ferguson, with which we began, I cannot imagine living the Christian life on any other basis than this. The hope of the resurrection to eternal life. Oh, this future hope is a present comfort. Our Heavenly Father, may it indeed be so in the mind, heart, and life of every man and woman, boy and girl gathered here in your sight, your presence this day. May our hope be kindled. May it be inflamed by your word and all that we have pondered. At times we are so slow to understand and so slow to apply. But we do pray for a spirit of wisdom and revelation this day that we might take to heart these great and glorious truths and that we might indeed orient our lives accordingly in a fashion that will ultimately be glorifying and honoring to you. Pray our Father for the sin-wearied soul in our presence that you might bring comfort by means of the gospel and the assurance of sins forgiven in Christ Jesus. We pray for the believer who is down, discouraged, and disappointed, that it need not be so, that even in the midst of life's trials and the sorrows we bear, there is this bright light, this illuminating light, this great hope that awaits us, this glory that we cannot even imagine. For the unbeliever in our midst who finds all of this but mere trivialities, 
May you bring the weightiness of what has been said this day down to bear upon their hearts. And may you break them, show them who and what they really are in your presence. That there is no forgiveness outside of Christ and certainly no hope of eternal life without reconciliation with you. In all this, we pray for the edification of your people. Pray for the furtherance of your kingdom. And we ask it in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.